Well, hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Pep Talk, the persuasive evangelism podcast. I am, as ever, Andy Bannister, and I'm joined by my co-host today. I'm joined by my Solas colleague, Gavin Matthews. Gavin, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am pretty good. Well, I'm good because I'm really excited, actually, because uh, <laughs> actually, I'm really cheeky. And so we have a blast from the past, actually, joining us on uh, the podcast today because we are joined all the way from the other side of the Atlantic, from Nova Scotia in Canada, uh, by uh, by Anna Robbins. Uh, in a minute, I'll get Anna to introduce herself. But Anna actually had the joy or the uh, the curse of teaching me when I was an undergraduate. There is only actually five years between us, um, but she taught me, uh, among other things, ethics and uh, and whatnot. So all the things areas I've made huge mess ups in ministry. I can basically blame Anna because she taught me this stuff. But she's pulling faces at me over the video links. So uh, Anna, welcome to Pep Talk. How are you doing today? Thanks, Andy. It's always a pleasure and uh, looking forward to our conversation and great to meet Gavin today as well. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a bit about uh, yourself? Because you have one of those quite impressive resumes and different parts to your job and so many sort of titles flowing around there. You've done so many things. So why don't we let you introduce yourself? Who is Anna Robbins? I always laugh when people do these introductions when I'm speaking somewhere and they'll sometimes just read like my bio off the website or something. And I'm like, I don't even know who they're talking about. Um, Because I will say this with all sincerity, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I'm just a, you know, DT Niles talked about a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. And everything that I do really is summed up in that phrase, I have to be honest. Um, So, but God's opened some really interesting doors for me to do that in some interesting ways over the years. And uh, what I'm doing now, I serve as president of uh, Katie Divinity College, um, and uh, uh, we are equipping leaders to serve the church today in you know the work that God's about in church in the world uh, with transformative impact. Um, and so that's a, an exciting outlet for uh, my passion for people to come to know Jesus, but uh, to equip the equippers. Sometimes that's depressing because I want to be out there on the front line, but um, it's not always your call to be on the front line all the time. So I enjoy opportunities for that. Um, But yeah, that's who I am. I'm married to Peter. I am mother to David. Um, Those are my relationships. um, And um, uh, I have an amazing team here. Those are also some key relationships for me. Hmm. And as you know, I I was at, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast might be interested that I was teaching at uh, London School of Theology for uh, 12 years um, back in the day when you were there back in the day <laughs> Andy introduced you as Anna Robbins but to give you your full title it's the Reverend Dr Anna Robbins which is an interesting uh, array of titles uh, and interesting I think because one of those is an ecclesiastical title and one is an academic mm. title and you've worked across those two fields of academia and, and church for a long time and I'm just wondering what what is the relationship or what should the relationship between those two things be? What can those of us in the church learn from academia? Why do we need academia? And, and indeed, what does the church offer the, the academy? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely committed to not only both of those things, but the interaction of both of those things. So you, you picked mm-hmm. up on that helpfully, although the titles I don't think impress anybody, including Jesus, and probably especially not Jesus, but um, <laughs> um, there they are. They do represent two aspects of my life that I hope are intertwined uh, always. So for me, the ecclesial call comes first, the call to the church to serve the church with the, whatever gifts God's given me. Um, and uh, and to approach that as a servant leader to say, what do I have to offer that is helpful to build up the church? So I've been interested over the years in uh, issues like justice and 
and apologetics. I'm, I'm a keen evangelist. I, I want people to know Jesus just because Jesus already knows them. And, uh, and it's just changes everything once you realize that. Um, and, and that led me into all kinds of questions, which was what led me into the academic side because I wanted my questions answered and questions begat more questions. And so you just keep studying until you have a collection of, uh, of these degrees. Um, but at the same time for me, the heart is still, um, serving the church. And so in the position that I have now, we very, that's very much tied in. We're on a, you know, we're part of a secular university campus, but we're a Christian seminary and our focus is not necessarily to equip people for the academy, but we, we sometimes do that. I don't I don't think you can separate the two, but um, mm-hmm. uh, our main focus is preparing leaders for the equipping leaders for the church. Um, and so we're very much entwined in that. At the same time, I think that, you know, particularly today, the church uh, suffers from a lack of thoughtfulness um, in its approach to ministry and so on. Increasingly, churches think they don't need qualified leaders, perhaps in some places. Um, they think that, you know, as long as it's someone they know who's come up through their church, that that's sufficient or they can, you know, give them what they need to know in terms of here's how you do this and here's how you do that. Um, More more than ever, we need leaders who know how to think clearly about a whole Mm. lot of different things because we all know what's coming at the church fast and furious and what the church is throwing at the world sometimes unhelpfully. And so we need people who are fully equipped to deal not only with those issues, but to relate to people out of a self-knowledge that doesn't just visit their own stuff on other people. So that's another thing that we're about here is, you know, come to know yourself as a pastoral leader so that you can actually help other people come to know themselves so that they can come to know Jesus in, in a, in an integral way. Um, uh, rather than just, well, now I'm a leader and I'm going to visit all my uh, negative things on you. So we need this. We need the interplay between the two. Yeah. This is a very rich environment for me here to do that because, you know, I've got colleagues on this campus who have different belief, no belief. Um, they love to engage in debate. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's a free kind of environment that way. And and I just think it's rich and, and we're the better for it because mm-hmm. we can't get away with stuff that, you know, the kinds of platitudes that Christians often uh, put forward. Um, we, they see through that pretty quick. On the other hand, I'll say, if I, if I may, being on a secular campus is hugely encouraging for us as a Christian seminary. It's, it's not, it's not a battleground. It is a garden, uh, because there are students who come through our door regularly from the rest of the university, not seminary students who see something here, not only students, but staff too, faculty, they see something that intrigues them. They see something that is hmm. winsome, something that um, connects them with who they are in a way that they'd not experienced before. And they can't articulate what that is a lot of the time, um, but they come through and they engage conversation and they realize there is a spiritual side to their life and it's awakening in some way, but there's no real way of addressing it in the hmm. wider culture. So I think that's hugely encouraging, and actually, one of the things that uh, that I think the same is beginning in Canada as over here. There is a sort of shift in culture happening that I think there is there's slightly more of an openness to spiritual questions. Um, you know, the the days of the new atheism are very much behind us. Um, the challenge, though, Anna, is I think sometimes the church lags behind. So sometimes in apologetics and evangelism, we're still fighting the debates and the battles of you know, 2006, when everything was Dawkins, now things are different. And the questions are different. The culture is different. 
What do you see as some of the challenges now for the church in the, in the current culture? Because I'm struck by the fact that Canada and the UK are actually very, very similar cultures. So what do you see as what, some of what's going on? Some of the things is that for, for perhaps for the church and for church leaders listening to this, we need to be aware of if we're going to engage well in today's age. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I used to teach, as you know, probably know, um, you know, the new, the new atheism is part of, you know, my courses and so on. I haven't taught that now for a few years because mm. we all know it's it's dead. Um, the, the old atheism is still alive in places where the old atheism always thrived, I think. Um, and there are, there's a, a more of a apathy, perhaps, even if there's an interest in spirituality, there is an apathy to the mm. church. Yes. Um, and um, I follow, really, you know, Charles Taylor in the secular age uh, for a lot of this. I think he's analyzed that turn very well uh, in terms of, um, you know, how how people have um, in, after modernism, in other words, after um, going through a period where humans have convinced themselves they're in control of their lives and of the future and all of these things, um, we've kind of relegated God um to a, a place of imminence where there's no longer a transcendence. There's no uh, answerability. There's no higher power. There's just this, this is all there is. But I, I see this generation coming up, recognizing that that isn't enough. The meh is, is not going to get them anywhere. The meh is not connecting with the whole of who they are. And so as long as the church is still fighting in silly polarized arguments um, online or wherever that is, um, they're not really scratching where it itches. And it's this much deeper sense of, you know, a lost transcendence. And how yes. do we reconnect that? I think that that the church really needs to wrestle with because, yeah, I think we're still in many ways um, uh, arguing um, things that nobody's even asking anymore. Oh, one of the things I'm observing is that there are certain uh, more traditional churches which uh, preach the same message century in, century out, nothing changes, and others who are just disappearing into culture. You know, they want to be relevant, but then they lose a kind of an edge and they end up in culture wars. Others end up ignoring culture. How can we actually engage? Uh, one thing that drug me, uh, grabbed my attention when I looked at your website was the uh, the kind of the threefold um, headline across your cultural thing, which is engage, expose, reflect uh, uh, as ways of trying to engage. Can you tell us a little bit about what good engagement that holds on to our Christian message looks like in that context? Yeah, I mean, I think we... We have to recognize in a way that culture wars people maybe don't, that we all have a culture um, and it's not, and you can't really say that there's, well, there's the church culture and then there's the wider culture. When people gather in church, whether it's on a Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day of the week it is, they come out of, they don't even come out of, they represent that culture as they gather together. So I think for a long time, some people in churches had this idea that, well, you know, there's the church and then there's culture. And you still hear that language all the time. I find it super frustrating because people <laughs> say, well, the culture says, I'm like, well, you're part of that culture. Unless you've become a monk somewhere in a cave up on the mountain, you're part of that culture. And so uh, we can't we can't pretend like just because you're in the church that suddenly you have this kind of God's eye view on what has formed you from, you know, from the womb outwards um, through the whole of your life. We, we are that culture. And so we have to recognize that when we're gathered as the church, we are a microcosm of that culture. Now we're seeking to, to, to be also formed in the likeness of Christ, but those are not two independent things. We bring that context to our faith and that faith speaks into and is formed within a context that's who we are. And I, hmm. you know, I, I had an experience some years ago 
uh, of, with a colleague who, when we were talking about um, forging um, a partnership with some Indigenous Christians to see Christian, Christianity more contextually, uh, Indigenously, um, they, were, they were quite infuriated and said, we don't do contextual theology. And, and I couldn't understand how you can do any other kind of theology because we all inhabit a context. And so um, Jesus comes to us in a context, in a place and time. Jesus lived in a context, a place and time. Jesus was shared the culture of the ancient Near East, I mean, of the Roman culture and so on, the Jewish culture. He would have touched into all of these things that would have been part of how he acted and and so on. So I think I think we have to recapture that sense of who we are and that is why we sometimes differ, you know, in our interpretations and so on, in our applications. And so we don't need to always fight about that. It's not always just simply how we understand Jesus. It's how we understand Jesus meeting us in the context in which we're rooted. Um, so I think if we could come to that sense of we are enculturated people, we are formed in a context so that when we study scripture and we worship God, we need to seek to be increasingly informed in Jesus' likeness, but that will always come in a package. And we'll have, I think, we will be um, sometimes closer uh, to the image of God and, and what we reflect, and sometimes we'll be farther away from it. And I think it keeps us self-critical in a helpful way uh, when we recognize that. Hmm. I'm also struck, Anna, as you were talking there, that's... Um... But one of the things I find quite intriguing about about the Christian faith, faith quite beautiful about the Christian faith, actually, is the way that perhaps among all the world's religious traditions, it has this place for affirming and embracing and enjoying culture properly. When we take it seriously, I was reading one of my favorite authors, Lamin Sana, African theologian's little book, Whose Religion is Christianity, rereading it this morning. He talks about the fact that it's interesting if you look at, say, other religious traditions like Islam, everything is Arabized. But Christianity, when it's when it's really taken seriously, African Christianity should look African. Indigenous Christianity should look indigenous. We don't change what we preach, but it should look different. How do we get? How do we perhaps recapture some of that in the church? Because I think we have fallen a little bit into the trap of, as you say, there's a Christian culture and it looks like X, rather than I wonder if we worked a little bit harder. Again, what's the culture around us like? What are the bits that reflect the image of God beautifully? Because every culture reflects something of God well, and every culture has things which need challenging. How do we how do we break some of that tendency to you know create churchianity as a culture rather than try and incarnate the gospel into the culture where we're found. Yeah, I, I, I think about it in two ways. Uh, I, you know, there's, yeah, there's the academic side I think of, and then there's the, you know, the working outside. Do the working outside then, because I know you're, you, you're, you're, you're good at bridging that gap. We've done the kind of academic background. To, yeah, take, think, take, it, take it down to, to grassroots for us. Well, I think we have this impression that if we are in church for an hour a week, we are therefore formed in the likeness of Christ. And then we are able to walk out of the church and judge the rest of culture. And I think that um, actually we are far more formed by the culture. And if you have, if you're in church for an hour a week, and some of that itself will be a reflection of culture, you're actually getting very little that is counterculture um, mm. in any real sense. And so we have to do that work ourselves and that engagement. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's something that could come very natural to us. We tend to, as the transformation happens, identify Jesus maybe with some of the material culture in a way that, that is unhelpful and then, and then paralyzes our thinking um, or, or 
hardens our thinking in that place and time. So for example, um, you know, I think about places where the, the, the church would have a much better connection with community and could serve its community much better with a different facility. But we are so committed to our church building, for example, you know, that it has to happen in the church building and that this is the church building. And you think, you know, look, look at McDonald's restaurants. It's still a McDonald's restaurant. It's still a Big Mac. You go anywhere in the world, they taste the same, but the, the decor has changed. If you look at a McDonald's from the sixties and seventies, eighties, nineties, you keep watching to, you know, the, the decor has changed. This is, a, this is a simple example, but I'm trying to give a simple example, hmm. you know, but, but we sit in our churches and we're like, no, the whole world has changed. I'm, you're, you're taking this carpet, this sanctuary, this whatever out of my cold, dead hands, you know, if ever at all. Um, and rather than saying, well, you know, this, this is a representation of a culture in a place and a time, how the faith looked at a place and a time. What if, what if, you know, we, we thought differently about how we serve our culture. So I think that's a material example of what I'm trying to say in terms of how we articulate, you know, the gospel. For some people, you're not, you're not actually sharing the gospel unless you tick certain boxes, unless you um, use certain key phrases, unless someone shows up at, at, at church the next Sunday with in a suit and with a big Bible. I mean, I, you, I, that's a metaphor, but you know what I'm saying? Already, already their life has changed rather than saying this is actually for most people, a long process. Some people will be converted in a moment, but for many, probably most, it's a long process. So you have to have the hard work of walking with people, journeying with people and so on. And, and that can't be uh, simply an invitation to participate in a culture from another time and place. I don't know if I'm making any sense or if maybe I should just, you know, start that part again, but am I, am I making any sense? You no, you're making, you're making perfect sense. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to pick up on the, something you mentioned earlier on was um, that you felt that the church is very often reacting to what's going on in culture. And so we're constantly playing catch up with, with, with yesterday's agendas. But corporations are spending vast amounts of money trying to see where culture and things are going so that they're prepared for the next waves of what's happening. And, and you're involved in a major research project looking at where you think culture might be going and preparing the church for the future. Could you tell us a little bit about why you're doing that and, and where things – I mean, aside from sort of stunning prophetic insight in the, sort of the serious academic thinking through these things, where do you think we need to be ready for and prepared for in Western culture at, at this present moment? Yeah. Well, I want to preface I, what I'm going to say about that, I think, because um, what we're doing is really exciting. I hope I hope people will find it exciting. But I want to preface it, that with uh, a bridge from what we were just talking about in that I think that a big issue with our churches as to why we got culturally stuck is because we became colonizers. And people are often not comfortable with that language when you're talking about evangelism because they say, well, isn't that some kind of like, you know, left wing thing or whatever. I don't care if you call it left or right. It's if it's if that's how things were, that's how they were. And churches um, where many came to roost in a con in a context where um, they were allied with culture, a voice of culture, um, were the only religious game in town and and had this idea that everybody has to look like us. And a lot of our evangelism took on that quality, too and failed then to recognize our own failures, our own mistakes, our own shortcomings, and sought to just keep perpetuating that culture 
year in and year out um, as if nothing had ever changed and and continually wanting people to look like me, act like me, think like me. And, and I think until we're ready to let go of that idea of the colonizing church, we're not ready for innovation. And, and when we can let go of that idea, then we can say, aha, actually, Jesus didn't just come and, and live on earth and die and rise to life again, but he's alive today. He's walking in my town right? He's walking into my neighbor's house. He's in my back, like he's in my backyard. When I'm digging in the garden, Jesus is there. And I think when we're struck with that reality, Mm. that Jesus isn't some historical figure in a stained glass window, but Jesus is walking on our soil where we walk every day. If you're an urban person, he pounds the pavement with you. He's in the office building. Like Jesus is here with us, the incarnational idea. I think then we're really ready to say, Okay, so much of what we've done is always been responsive then. We're saying, okay, well, what, what's happening now? How do we respond to that? And there is a nature in which that is, that is natural, I think, for the church, that we do respond to what's around us um, to some degree. But, but there are resources available to us. So we know that the business community, for, for example, does this because they need to know what's coming next if they're going to have the product that, you know, that they're going to convince us we need. They, they have to do these studies of what's coming next. And they spend a lot of time doing futures research and so on. And it occurred to us that maybe uh, we could harness some of that work and do some of that work ourselves and process it theologically uh, to equip churches and church leaders to be able to see what's coming next, not just always be responsive to what's happening now. Um, so I think there are cues that we can read that are on the horizon of, of changes that are made in culture that we can, we can begin to say, okay, we see what, what's happening now. We do need to respond to that, but look, look what's coming. So when we're responding now, we're preparing ourselves as well for what could be next. We, you're never, this is never a certainty. You never know for sure what's coming next, but you can read some of these signs and have a sense so that we can start to get ready for that and be the church that that future is going to need because it's going to be on us faster than we even know what to mm. do. And so oftentimes we hear church leaders say, you know, I, everything has changed so fast. I just don't even know what to do. But if we can say, what, look, here's what's coming. What kind of, and we can ask them the dangerous questions, you know, what kind of community is needed for what kind of faith community? What, what does it look like? How is it shaped? Does it need a building? What kind does it not need a building? Where will it meet? What kind of, you know, how will we share faith in this context and so on? So then we can ask those questions and be much more prepared uh, for, Mm. for the next wave of, of, of change that is already thrust upon Mm. us. It's it's pretty exciting because you can even get, you know, um, AI stuff that will scan and give you information about, you know, all kinds of things. But again, the unique thing is being able to take some of those things, to filter them down and to think theologically about them. You know, so this is happening. Do we just copy it as the church or, or how do we think about it theologically to say, no, this is something actually that we should be prepared to take a stand on. Or, or, or this is something that, you know, of course we can evolve into that, that context. Mm. Um, but if we're going to take a stand on this, how are we going to equip ourselves now for, for that when it actually mm. comes? And what does it mean to take a stand? Does it mean we're always going to be in a fight with culture? I hope not. I hope it means that we'll actually, if we're far enough ahead of the game, I think we can actually become a, an institution, uh, a, an organism in society that helps people to think well and clearly about things we need to think about with a sense of values. 
and, mm. and we've really lost that opportunity as the church. And I think that's disappointing because everybody knows that the technological and the cultural advancements are way outstripping our ability to reflect on them ethically. And, and if the church could just get ahead of some of this, instead of being combative in saying, well, we don't think this is right or we don't think that is right, we can say, let's let's think about this. How do we think about this in a constructive way? How do we think about this in terms of what's good for humanity? What's ha- what helps people to flourish? What helps the created world to flourish? Um, and, and therefore, how do we respond to what we see coming on the horizon and so on? Mm-hmm. Anna, we've covered a, a lot of ground in the last... 24 minutes some almost out of time we've looked at some of the challenges and at the end there perhaps some of the opportunities last question just briefly i i guess i'd love to ask is so you know as someone who's watched culture and engaged with it and taught on these things uh for years and also engaged in ministry personally i know over the years i've been i've loved some of the stories you've told about your own kind of conversations about faith with folks who come across your path but what gives what gives you hope for what's going on right now because what strikes me you could be very pessimistic you could go oh, there's all these challenges and the church has had these problems what i love about talking about you you're honest about where we're at but you're also such as positive uh sort of source of joy too so what what gives you hope in all the stuff yeah there's things to figure through but there's also reason to be hopeful what what keeps you hoping uh, amidst all of this well, for, for me, Andy, if you're going to be hopeful, you have to be honest about the reality. And and it's taking stock of that first that enables hope to be rebirthed. Uh, if we're denying that or not dealing with it or confronting it, then I think it just sucks the hope out of us. I was speaking to a group of uh, church leaders from um, uh, a very different denomination from my own, um, who in Canada would be, yeah, very different from my own. And I was surprised to even have an invitation to talk there. And I told them about some of what was happening, you know, and why the church, this was happening and so on. And, and uh, the moderator at the end, there was this long pause and and she said, well, that was dark. (laughs) And I laughed and I asked for an opportunity to just tie up that end because um, when, when you talk about things like decline of church and, you know, challenges and all the, and we all know the reality out there that it's, it, it's a different time and that can be frightening for people and they are scared. And that seems dark to them because what they are familiar with and comfortable with is, is passing away. Um, but I am absolutely filled with hope because, um, I don't have the illusion that the churches that we've built over the last several hundred years are going to continue into the future. And so I'm, I'm excited because something new has to happen. Something new will happen because God's spirit is at work. There's, you know, there's the theological affirmation. God's spirit is yet at work um, all around us. God wants to be known right? It's not that God is hiding somewhere. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus came so that God can be known. And, and so because I believe in, in God's ability to make himself known, I'm very hopeful. And I see every day, as I mentioned, you know, here on a secular campus, um, this is the greatest thrill for me is, is people who are not believers, as I've said, or, or are, 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 you know, are differently to have different beliefs. Um, they are interested. Um, they know they have an, a sense that, that there is something bigger, something more, something that they, they see, um, brought out of them when we interact, uh, as, as people who are, you know, admittedly spiritual people seeking after the things of God. Um, and, and God is chasing people down all over the place. I see God at work all around me, all the time in in what 
what are just crazy circumstances. And, um, and so if God is at work in that way, um, in, in, in a, and I can see it, then I'm very convinced that God's at work in that way in the lives of people all over the place. And, uh, and if the church hasn't, um, you know, brought in the harvest, then that's our failing. Um, because mm-hmm. the, the harvest is white, uh, it's ready. And, um, and people are, are wanting Jesus. They want Jesus in a different package than perhaps we've packaged him in the church. And so that's what we have to reckon with. Yeah. Mm. That's a brilliant note on, on which to sort of tie all those different threads together. Thank you so much. And if people want to find out more about your work and where you work, where's the best place for them online to go and, and have a look? Yeah, AcadiaDiv.ca. I'm here at Acadia Divinity College. Um, students can study here from anywhere. Uh, we All of our offerings are live and hybrid, everything that we do. And so, um, yeah, come and see us, find us, find what we're doing and peruse the website. And you can see all the exciting new stuff that's happening too. Mm. Thank you. We will put that URL into the show notes so that you can look that up later on. That is all we have time for on this episode. Thank you so much to my co-host Andy and of course, Reverend Dr. Anna Robbins all the way from Nova Scotia. Thank you so much for all your thought and insight. We will be back in a fortnight with probably a different presenter and definitely a different guest, but the topic will still be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world today. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. Mm.